Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 14, verses 1 to 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 10. That's Genesis 14, 1 to 24, page 10 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Genesis 14, 1 to 24. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Sheve, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the, their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings, king of, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, so... um, Genesis 14 is what we're going to study together this morning, and um, 
all Scripture is profitable. Right? It's all inspired by God, and it's profitable. So even a crazy chapter like this with a bunch of names you can't pronounce. Um, no, Tyler didn't lose a bet so that he had to read um, <laughs> Scripture this, this morning. Um, but actually, this obscure chapter that you might actually not spend much time on in your life was significant enough for David to reflect on and include in the psalm that is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And the book of Hebrews gives a ton of ink to this cryptic figure, Melchizedek. So even though it might seem like, what does this have to do with the writer of the Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit included quite a bit about this guy um, as he relates to Jesus, our high priest. And so um, it's one of the reasons why we do, why we believe in expository preaching, taking passages, taking books of the Bible and going through them one at a time because God ends up setting in the agenda. We can get a little idiosyncratic. We can have kind of a canon within the canon. Well, we like these books or we like this chapter or whatever, but it's good sometimes to kind of get out of your familiar territory and your comfort zone and get exposed to all of God's Word, which is all profitable for us. Okay, so Genesis 14. We'll start with a couple simple Bible questions. These are not hard. So, um, was Jesus the Son of God, our Savior? Was he a priest? Go for it. All right, there we go. What tribe was he from? Judah. What tribe were priests supposed to come from? What? Levi. So, Jesus is from the wrong tribe. Was he from the wrong tribe? Okay, so what gives? Well, this whole Melchizedek thing is the answer. Does this really matter? Is it a big deal? Is it a little deal? So legitimacy, the legitimacy of who he is, what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be, is all based on his identity. So if you're not the right person, you're not the right person. So in our Western world, that's kind of hard for us to understand because this kind of qualification for a role is often not something we wrestle with too much. Like, you don't even have to go to an Ivy League school to become the president of the United States, right? But if you are wanting to emigrate to Israel, you need to prove something about your lineage, okay? So your lineage matters for access to certain things, um, or if you're living on a, under a monarchical system of government, you've got to have the right lineage in order to be a potential heir to the throne. Okay, so when it comes to the Messiah, the stakes are infinitely higher. So when Jesus was on earth, his credentials were constantly under scrutiny, right? So just one, for instance, in John 7, Jesus is talking about being the light of the world and all of these things, and people say, this really is the prophet. So there was this expectation of this capital P prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 speaks of him. Others say, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Okay, more expectations. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Nazareth was in Galilee. So he's coming from the wrong place, right? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So do you see his credentials are being reviewed? So this is a big deal if we're going to actually trust him. So in the storyline of the Bible, God, here's the bottom line for us, I think, is God has gone to great lengths to win our trust. Isn't that encouraging to just stop and think of the lengths that God has gone to to win our trust? He's not hiding the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams. On the contrary, he goes to these great lengths to prove it to us that we might have reason upon reason upon reason to trust him, to trust him with threats and battles that we face, to trust him for true reward and blessing. Both of those things can undermine our faith. The, the threats and the battles, we can, we can run to other things, trusting in them to rescue us, to provide safety and protection. We need to really know that we can trust God in Christ. And then also, when it comes to reward and blessing, it's really easy to believe the false promises of this world. We need to know that God is the rewarder of the one who seeks him. We can trust him. And that's actually what Psalm, I'm sorry, Genesis 14 is all about. Trusting God with the battles and the threats and for true reward and blessing. So let's Dive in here. First point, the battle is the Lord's. Um, there's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful, or the slides will be up on the screen. So this first point, the first 16 verses, um, the recounting of this battle, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but it's important to understand what's happening and why it was included. So first off, in the ancient Near East, treaties among kings were very common. Okay, So some were made among equals, so there was like a commitment to honor each other's borders, to return runaway slaves, to maintain trade, that kind of thing. You can see how that would be important, right? We do it today, just different, under different titles. So there were also treaties between superior and inferior kings. Sometimes those were amicable, they were good. Sometimes they were more like a master-slave arrangement. Okay, so maybe you've heard this term before, suzerain treaties. So you'd have the suzerain, the superior king, and the vassal, like the slave king. And the arrangements usually involve tribute, like a tax. So you pay the tax, peace is maintained. So the greater king is going to leave you alone. He's even going to come to your aid if you get attacked by somebody else. In fact, that's oftentimes why you would make these alliances, to protect yourself from attack. You've got big brother, you know. You try to beat me up. I'm going to call on my big brother, and he's going to beat you up. My dad can beat up your dad, that kind of thing. It's just in the ancient Near Eastern version of it. Okay? But if you stopped paying the tax, you were picking a fight. So if you won that fight, you might gain your freedom and independence, and you don't have to pay the tax anymore. But see, that's what's happening here in these verses. Okay? At least the asking for a fight part. So the five kings of verse 2... And make sure you think like chieftains of small 
city kingdom type places, you know, maybe there's 5,000 people or 10,000 people, not like some great imperial monarch, okay? But these five kings served Ketulamer for 12 years. And then they stopped and they got away with it for a year. And in the 14th year, Ketulamer grabbed three of his allies and attacked. They just came down, just kind of beating everybody up all the way down the king's highway like this. And now they're going to come and teach these rebels a lesson and take what was owed with interest. So needless to say, Ketulamer's allied forces were too much for these rebel kings. Okay, so look at verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went their way. So why in the world do we have this recounting of obscure international relations? Because of verse 12. Because Lot got kidnapped. All of this is being recorded for us because Lot got kidnapped. Because Lot is Abram's nephew. So Abram gets involved, which would be dangerous, right? But Abram, he's the father of faith, right? Abram trusted Yahweh's promise. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. You mess with my nephew, you're messing with me. So Abram's actually trusting the promise of chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, when he went after those invaders. He also loved his nephew. So he's going after him to rescue him. But he's doing it because he's trusting the Lord's promise to him. Okay? So he knows, ultimately, that those who curse him will be cursed. He's banking on that. And his faith goes public as he runs after his nephew to rescue him. So this is crazy. He has three, 318 trained men, you know, in his household, you know, people that um, are able for battle. He also had some allies, which we find out a little bit later, that came along. But it's interesting how, even though this was a risk, when you have God on your side, the battle is the Lord's. So you don't have to go by, you know, just numbers on paper. So Deuteronomy 20 said this, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. Or do you remember when Jonathan was, was going along with his armor bearer and they just attacked a garrison like on their own and won? He said to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. The odds don't matter if God's on your side. Or in Zechariah 4, it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Okay? We need to remember that that's true, that we can trust God, remember his promises when we face our own battles and threats that seem insurmountable. We can trust God to fight for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? So Abraham believes that. He trusts that. He pursues, and God gives this victory he takes this risk 
by faith and out of love for his nephew. So in the latter half of chapter 14, so that's the, that's the expression of faith in this military sense. But the latter half of chapter 14, we see Abram once again trust God's promise in the way that he responds to these two kings that meet him in the valley of Shava. Okay, so second point, the Lord is our reward, verses 17 to 24. And this is really where the emphasis is found in this chapter. So let's read it again, and we've got to figure out who this cryptic figure Melchizedek is, um, along with the other king that meets him, the king of Sodom. So look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So he generously provides a meal for Abram and his troops. He was priest of God Most High. He's a king and he's a priest. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek is worshiping the same God. He's a priest of the same God, and he's saying God was with you. He fulfilled his promise to be with you and to curse those who curse you. He's the one that delivered you. And Abram, like the great forefather, gives this Melchizedek guy a tenth of everything. Then there's another encounter, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons that you've rescued people from my kingdom. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. I've made a vow. I've promised to God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share because they were his allies. Okay, if you look back at verse 13 of chapter 14, then one who had escaped came and told Abraham the he- or Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. So we know that the 318 went out as well as some allies. And so, hey, let them have their share, but I don't want any of the plunder. So once again, Abram is found trusting the promise of blessing that God has given him. He's refusing to take the plunder and be beholden to an enemy of God. Okay, Sodom was a wicked place. We already know that from the last chapter. Tyler preached from it last week. 1313. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram wants it to be known that he was not in this for the money. Okay, he simply wanted to rescue his nephew. He didn't want any association with the king of Sodom certainly not to give him any opportunity to say that Abram was in his debt. Oh, yeah, Abram's rich. (laughs) That would be because of me. In fact, as Tyler pointed out last week, when Lot, do you remember this? When Lot chose the Jordan Valley, it seems like he was making a selfish choice, and there's this ominous note that he journeyed east. So, in a sense... Abram would be doing the same thing. He would be getting too closely aligned with the king of Sodom if he were to take 
this plunder. So he's not going to toy with worldly gain. He believes that the Lord is his reward and that the only true and trustworthy source of blessing is God. So he asked the Lord in the beginning of the chapter, the next chapter, we'll see this next week, since I'm not taking anything from them, look at Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Almost like an affirmation, a reinforcement of Abram's faith thus far. And then Abram says, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Make good on your promise. You see how he's still trusting him. And ultimately he will give that child in the form of Isaac. Okay? So the bottom line is the Lord is our reward and the only, so- only true source of blessing. And so the call here, again, is to trust him. Don't ever sell your soul to get ahead. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So listen to a couple quotes here. A guy named Alan Ross, I think, summarizes this well. Abram chose to wait for the blessing of God rather than accept anything from the king of Sodom, for he would not be satisfied with the spoils of war, especially if it put him in debt to this pagan king. So Abram could have viewed that plunder as a blessing from God, but as Ross continues here, he says this, Abram wanted something far more enduring than the spoils of war. He wanted the fulfillment of God's promise that would be miraculous and enduring. Melchizedek's renewal of the word of blessing must have excited Abram's faith so that he could resist this opportunity for easy blessing. The priest's words reminded Abram that he would rise in prosperity and indicated by whom he would rise. Abram thus resolved to receive all from God and not a thread from Sodom. The people of God frame their life so that for all success, joy, comfort, and prosperity, they depend on God. But it must be a faith like Abram's that will be able to discern what is from God and what is from the world. And then he says, in this narrative, the more subtle threat came after the success in the conflict and was an offer that would confuse worldly benefits and divine blessing. In many ways, the tension that Abram faced with the king of Sodom was far more critical than the battle, for the reputation of the Lord was at stake. The people of God may win spiritual struggles, but in the limelight of their success, they may give away all the glory to some pagan pretender who would be delighted to rob God of the credit for spiritual success. So what does that mean for us? Walking by faith means that you don't ever let the ends justify bad means. We can't let good ends justify ungodly means. Okay? We can't be tempted to, we can't give in to temptation to take matters into our own hands. So how many of you know the name Mark Driscoll? Okay, number of you. So Mark Driscoll planted Mars Hill Church in Seattle back in 1996. Okay, so by March of 2014, what's that, 20 years? There were 15 locations and five states with 14,000 members. I mean, it was like one of America's fastest growing churches. So his rise was like meteoric. Tons of people came to Christ through his ministry. Sadly, in the summer of 2014, complaints of abusive leadership practices and other concerns started to 
really pick up some steam, some snowball effect. In August of 2014, the board of Acts 29, so there was this whole church planning movement that grew out of his ministry. You know, Acts ends in 28, Acts 29. God's going to keep working in powerful, miraculous ways to spread the gospel through the earth. So Acts 29, they removed him from its membership and urged him to step down from ministry. He finally did so on October 14th, 2014. Within three months, Mars Hill Church was dissolved. The individual congregations either became independent or merged with other churches or disbanded. So one of the things that kind of caused all this to implode was in 2011 and 12, Mars Hill paid a marketing company, Result Source, at least $210,000 to ensure that Mark Driscoll's book, Real Marriage, would make the New York Times bestseller list. So according to the contract document, this company, RSI, Result Source, Inc., contracted with Mars Hill to conduct a bestseller campaign for your book, Real Marriage, on the week of January 2nd, 2012. So one journalist wrote this about it. The details of the agreement between Mars Hill and Result Source are complicated. Result Source received a fee of $25,000 to coordinate a nationwide network of book buyers who would purchase Real Marriage at locations likely to generate reportable sales for various bestseller lists, including the New York Times list. According to the terms of the contract between RSI and Mars Hill, RSI will be purchasing at least 11,000 total orders in one week. The contract called for the author to provide a minimum of 6,000 names and addresses for the individual orders and at least 90 names and addresses for the remaining 5,000 bulk orders. Please note that it is important that the makeup, this is from the contract, please note that it is important that the makeup of the 6,000 individual orders include at least 1,000 different addresses with no more than 350 per state. The journalist comments, the purpose of this instruction appears to be a way to outsmart systems put in place by the New York Times and other list compilers to prevent authors from buying their way onto bestseller lists. So RealSource used other techniques to work around the safeguards in order to get a bestseller. They used their own payment systems, gift cards, and a thousand different payment types in order to do this. Um, The magazine concludes, what RealSource does is not illegal, but organizations that publish bestseller lists discourage such practices. Okay. So maybe the purpose was, what do you think their purpose was? To get the word out there. This is a book about Christian marriage. Like, we want everybody to see it. We want to raise the visibility of this book so that the message gets spread as far as possible. That's the end. That's the purpose, right? That's good. But the end didn't justify the means. That, those means, that's taking matters into your own hands. That's what Abram refused to do in this exchange with the king of Sodom. So you and I are probably never going to get courted by a wicked king, you know? And you're probably not going to have any reason to try to buy your way onto the New York Times bestsellers list. But you and I can be very easily tempted to justify unbelieving, take matters into your own hands, means for apparently good ends. 
This might seem petty, but have you ever played the lottery? Justifying it that you would be so generous with your earnings, you'd even give a ton to the church, like fix our building problems. Like, no, no, no. Rather have the building problems. Lottery is a system that preys on the poor. It's built on false promises. Many a lottery winner would tell you that. Have you ever been tempted to compromise your integrity to win or to maintain the business of an important client? And have you ever done so and justified it because you have to put food on the table? Like the loss would be too significant. And it has to do with people that you love. So you're willing to compromise your integrity with the means in order to attain the ends. The ends might be good, but the call is, trust me. Trust me. You can trust me. That's what the message of this chapter is all about. You can trust me in the face of threats and the battles you may face, but also with provision and blessing and reward and let me take care of that and provide for you. So you can see how we can fall for this as individuals. You can see how churches can fall for this, compromising what they believe out of fear that it might end up being too out of step with the norms in the culture. We've got to trust the promises of God and walk by faith and leave the results to God. So we know what happened in Nazi Germany when Christian pastors and congregations were more concerned about their own survival and being in the good graces of the authorities than the lives of those Jews who were being exterminated, at first discriminated against and then exterminated. Or it happened in the USSR under communism. So Tyler and I are reading this book, Insanity, The Insanity of God. Man, is this a good book. It's hard to put down. I encourage you to pick it up. The Insanity of God, A True Story of Faith Resurrected. So I won't take the time to give the context, but basically he was interviewing some people from the USSR when they were under communism. Such intense persecution happened. And so this guy, Nick Rip, Ripkin, met a Ukrainian man named Kostyantin. He wasn't a pastor, but he was so active in his church that the authorities figured he should be given some re-education in the labor camps, along with there were like 200 other pastors that were carted off. So he was there for years. He was one of the few that survived. And so listen to just a brief thing from his story. By the time Kostyantin was released, himself released from the camp, he learned that his wife had died and that his teenage son, Alexei, had been living for years with relatives. He was reunited with his son, and together they visited his wife's grave. The next Sunday, Kostantin took Alexei to church with him. That was the day when Kostantin learned that not all ministers had made the same decisions as the brave pastors that he had seen die at the labor camp. The new pastor of his old congregation had evidently made some concessions to the communist authorities to keep his job. And on Kostyantin's first Sunday back with his son, the pastor was about to make another compromise. And so he bowed the knee again to the authorities and changed 
what they did. They actually had to like tell everyone 26 and younger to leave the church. Otherwise, they would get closed down. And they did that. Once again, kind of out of fear, not out of faith, bowing the knee. So Costantin stood with his son, and they left. And as the two of them walked out of the sanctuary together, Costantin vowed never to enter that church again. He explained, it was no longer the church that I attended and known before, and the gospel that minister preached certainly was not the faith that I had gone to prison for. So <laughs> tell us a little bit later story of these, these brave, like, stalwart old women who, if there was one of these compromising pastors that got installed in the, in the, uh, the pulpit as the pastor, they would, they would, you know, stand there and sing the songs, and when the pastor came up to preach, they would turn around. And when he was done preaching, they would turn back around, and they would pray, they would sing, but they weren't going to compromise like those pastors. So once again, trust me, no matter the threats, no matter the battles, trust me for blessing to provide for you, to care for you. I am the source of your true reward. I am your great reward. So Abram had Melchizedek to remind him of the promise and the true source of his victory and his blessings. We, in a sense, do too. We have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so last point, Melchizedek and our great high priest. So this chapter is, like I said at the beginning, surprisingly important to the rest of the story of the Bible. Melchizedek is this type of Christ. He's pointing forward to the ultimate priest king. Okay, king and priest just did not go together. Remember when Saul tried to, to do that? He tried to offer sacrifices. Did not go well for him. You're either a priest or you're a king, but not a priest king. But this guy was one. And so, once again, we have some inspired commentary in the book of Hebrews. So flip ahead to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. God wants us to know what we have, who we have here. We have this great high priest. We have the ultimate priest king. So um, as we draw this to a close here, I'm going to read most of chapter 7. Just follow along with the argument, track with this, and see why Melchizedek points to our great high priest, King Jesus, and all that we have in him. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, most likely. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Actually, we'll get to that. So, okay, so Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Okay? Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now that could seem kind of weird, but the point is Genesis is full of genealogies. But this guy comes out of nowhere, and then he just is gone. 
So it's like he has no beginning and no end. So author picks up on it in that way. Without father or mother genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, note the reference point, Melchizedek is like Jesus, not Jesus like Melchizedek, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, they're the ones that received that tenth later on under the Mosaic Covenant, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, that's Judah, right? From which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, this is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, do you resonate with and are you thankful for the song, Before the Throne of God? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and intercedes for me. If you're thankful for that, then you need to realize that that all that that means is built on Hebrews 7, is built on Genesis 14. So I know it can feel distant from where we live, but listen, you are going to be weak this week. And you're going to need protection and support and help. Why can you draw near with confidence? 
that you have a strong and perfect plea before God. You can draw near with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help you in your need. It's because you have this great high priest. You're going to fail this week. And how can you stand before God once again with your sin and your failure? Because you have a great high priest. You have this perfect plea. He always intercedes for you. You can always come with confidence. There is always grace and mercy available to you in your time of need. And it's all because of Jesus. And so whatever the threat, whatever the temptation, we have this wonderful, glorious, perfect, high priest king through whom all the blessings of God are ours and protection and rescue. So the bottom line is Jesus, the priest king, he's the prophet too. He's everything to us. So we need to live like he's everything to us. He's the king. He's the king of kings. He's the priest He's the great high priest. He's even the lamb and the mercy seat and the veil and the mediator and the temple. He's the protector. He's the hero. He's the mediator and intercessor. And so, Bethel, we can trust him. We can go through this week with confidence that we have before the throne of God a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever intercedes for us, lives there to intercede for us. So let's trust him and walk by faith this week. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing that song to close. Father, I pray that in the mundane, so-called threats and temptations, as well as maybe some very serious ones, you would help us to trust in you and not run to other sources of protection or blessing. Lord, please keep us in your school of faith like you did Abram and help us to know all that we have because we have a great high priest the order of Melchizedek. And as a result, we can draw near with confidence. We can expect to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. Help us not compromise. Help us not shrink back in unbelief. Help us to keep walking with you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.